You're listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message at 11 a.m. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. To learn more, visit mtcarmeldemarest.com or facebook.com forward slash mtcarmeldemarest. Thanks for listening. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. I want to continue a series that I've entitled The Body. We're in part three, and I want to think on this theme of the unction. The unction. Costi Hinn, the nephew of the world-famous televangelist Benny Hinn, had a front-row seat to the inner workings of Hinn's healing ministries. Costi came face-to-face with some of the hypocrisy and devastation caused by the belief system. He shares his story in a book entitled God, Greed, and the Prosperity Gospel. I encourage you to purchase it. And if you can't purchase it, I'll buy it for you. There you go. He writes this in it. During 2011 and 2012, my mother received the news that a tumor had formed on the front part of her brain. My dad, understandably uncomfortable, quickly chimed in. She's going to be fine. God will heal her. He probably already has. For several months, the tumor caused all sorts of problems for her, but we had no idea. Doctors had misdiagnosed her several times. No prophetic words of knowledge were working. And finally, they found the issue. All the prosperity gospel power in the world could do nothing. With no choice but to pursue medical intervention, we faced the facts. It would be a surgeon's hand that healed my mother. No amount of prayer or faith had done the healing. Not one of the healers in our family showed up to handle it. The experience put a serious hole and the prosperity gospel foundation that I had come to depend on in the face of adversity. When we needed healing the most, it wasn't divine healing that solved it. It was medication and the skilled hands of a human surgeon. My mother's tumor became another layer on the mountain of evidence building against the prosperity gospel. God is a healer. But something about the way we teach that and the way we live that doesn't add up. I wondered about it all, but I still had no real answers. When it comes to the subject of words of wisdom, words of knowledge, faith, healings, miracles, those are tough subjects. They're explicitly taught in the scriptures And we often ask ourselves, are those things for today? And that's the subject that I want to address. Last week, we discussed unction. Unction is an old word for the Holy Spirit's anointing or His empowerment. You can write that down, His empowerment. From 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, we concluded, I don't know if you remember this from last week, that the unction does what? Functions. 
the unction functions. What that means for you is that if you recognize you are a sinner and you turn from your sin and trust Jesus as your Savior and God and you commit your life to Him, then the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, begins a relationship with you. He begins to change you and to remake you according to God's purposes. And not only that, but He also gives you a spiritual gift. A spiritual gift, and you may want to write this down, is a supernatural ability. A spiritual gift is a supernatural ability given by the Holy Spirit to each believer for the good of the church, the glory of God, and our personal joy. Various gifts are listed in Scripture, and today we're going to look at one passage, 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, and define and describe the first four groupings of gifts that we see. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through the first part of 10. Now he's listing off some, this is not an exhaustive list, but some of the spiritual gifts, these supernatural abilities he gives to believers in Jesus Christ for the good of the church. Ready? Verse 8. To one, that's a believer, is given a message of wisdom through the Spirit. To another a message of knowledge by the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings, very much in the plural, by the one Spirit. And verse 10, to another, the performing of miracles. The first thing that I'd like for us to do this morning is just walk through that list and define each of these groups of gifts. The first group that I want us to look at is the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Or a message of wisdom and a message of knowledge. You can write this down in your notes. But these two things are an articulate utterance. An articulate utterance of the implications of, of the implications of, or insight into Christ-centered gospel truths. Christ-centered gospel truths. I'm going to read it all at one time now. An articulate utterance of the implications of, or insight into, Christ-centered gospel truths. The first question we have to ask ourselves when we define a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge this way is why do we define it so specifically to Christ-centered gospel truths? Why isn't wisdom just advice in general? Why isn't knowledge just insight in general? And it has to do with the way the book of 1 Corinthians was written. The Apostle Paul has already addressed the subjects of the wisdom of God and the knowledge of God. He begins to address the subject of the wisdom of God in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Just write the reference down. The whole chapter is about the wisdom of God. And I'm going to just read to you the verse which I, which I think is the thesis or the main idea of the whole chapter. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Verse 24, 
Yet to those who are called, he's talking about Christians, to those who are saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. So according to the Bible, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, the wisdom of God is who? Christ. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, write that reference down. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, he begins to talk on the subject of the knowledge of God. The knowledge of God. And I'm going to read to you what I think is the thesis or the main idea of that passage. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 6 through 7. And listen to what Paul says. He says, yet for us, he's talking about Christians, believers, the church, there is one God, the Father. All things are from Him, and we exist for Him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through Him, and we exist through Him. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Now let me explain what he means by the last end of that. He says there were some new Christians or new believers in the Corinthian church that came out of severe idolatrous practice. He says, real knowledge, real Christian knowledge knows this. Is there any God, actual God, standing high behind the false idols? No. So even when food is sacrificed to a false God or an idol, there's nothing really there behind it. We know this because there's only one God and one Lord. Notice how knowledge of Jesus affected their living. You see this? But since those weaker believers didn't have that knowledge, it affected the way they lived their life. They said, I can't eat that food sacrifice to idols because it's going to another God. And mature believers are saying what? But there's no other God. Now here's why I want to tell you this. In some evangelical circles, and I don't want to pick on the church, she's the bride. You ain't going to talk about my Mandy in front of me, right? Okay? When we talk about the church, many have interpreted a word of wisdom and a word of knowledge to be this. A word of like wise or divine counsel in tough times. Or a word of knowledge, I've even seen people say, I have a word of knowledge about you and I have insight into your past or even like a prophecy about your future. But I sadly think they've misinterpreted this text because they've robbed it of its context. What has the Bible said about wisdom and knowledge? This is wisdom and knowledge pertaining specifically to who? Jesus Christ. See, the greatest thing you could come to know, the greatest thing that you can come to help live your life is not something, it's not a piece of advice, but it's actually a person. And here's what you've got to accept. At this time in the New Testament life, there wasn't a New Testament written. 
When the church gathered together, this is what Paul was hoping for. Somebody had a spiritual gift to have insight and implications into the advent or the coming of Jesus. And when they saw these weaker brothers in the church who were having a a hard time dealing with the idolatry and the food issue, somebody with the spiritual gift of wisdom and knowledge should have stood up and spoke up and said, let me tell you something, brothers and sisters, about Jesus. He's the only God. And so you don't have to worry about this meat sacrificed to idols. Let me give you some wisdom. I'll talk about how I think this shows up in the church today, but I think this gift is active and alive today if it's defined in its context. That it's about the implications and insights into Christ-centered gospel truths. The second gift, okay, the, we kind of coupled together the message of wisdom and the message of knowledge. It's hard to split wisdom and knowledge. They go hand in hand. But the second one is what? To one what? What is it? Look in the text. I'll wait on you. Faith. Faith. Write this down. Faith is an extraordinary measure of confidence in God. This special ability... This supernatural ability. This is a faith that someone has that goes above and beyond the faith for salvation. All right? This is an extraordinary measure of confidence in God. I'll go ahead and tell you whether you have this gift or whether you've run into somebody with this gift. You ready? I'm going to help you discern it real easily. These people who have the gift of faith, they don't say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. They don't say that. And I've met some of those people. These are amazing people to be around because I'm usually in that camp. God, I believe you, but I got some doubts. These people seem to be impervious to doubts. Instead, they say things like this. I'm not worried. God's got this. Have you ever ran into those people? God's got it. He'll take care of it. Often people of this supernatural gift of faith, they are prayer warriors. They pray and expect salvations, revivals, healings, and miracles. And they look at God like it should have already happened by now. It's amazing. These people don't believe in coincidence. They believe in providence. There's no such thing as a happy accident for people of faith. They are not surprised by God's good graces. They expect it. And let me tell you, when when life is tough and ministry is tough and the church isn't getting along, there is nothing more profitable, I think, than to have a person with the gift of faith walking around being able to encourage others. God's got it. Don't worry. He'll help us navigate this. They are a gift to the church. This third heading is gifts of healings. Gifts of healings. This is supernatural cures. Supernatural cures of various physical sicknesses. This is supernatural cures of various physical sicknesses. Sicknesses. And again, I want to emphasize something to you. In the Greek New Testament, the the Greek is the original language that the New Testament was written in, it uses both plural forms for healings and gifts. So it literally reads gifts 
of healings. Which suggests one of two things. That this gift of healing may come and go on various occasions. So you can think of it kind of like times for healings. Or there are different gifts for different kinds of illnesses. Okay, that someone may have the ability to cure heart disease. Do you get what I mean? It's a specific gift for a specific sickness. Here's what I want you to take away from it either way, because this will help us understand what's going on in the world. Either way, it suggests there is no such thing as a universal gift for all physical sicknesses. Or to put it in short, there is no such thing as a healer. Now you need to catch that. Nobody walks around with the gift of healing resting on them because if they did, they should go and clear every hospital. Why have they not done that? Such understandings of gift of healing have caused some of the cruelest and most dangerous doctrines. For instance, some healers, and I put that in quotations, proclaim it is sinful for a Christian to be sick. Some healers say that people are not healed because it's a lack of faith on their part. Let me tell you, my Bible knows of no such doctrine. Listen to the one healer that we do have in Scripture. I think we should go see Jesus. All right? Look at what Jesus does in Matthew 18 through 15. Just two verses. I want you to notice this. Matthew 8, excuse me, Matthew 8, 14 through 15. Jesus, now he's a healer. He's got the gift. It rests on him. He can do what he wants with it. Jesus went into Peter's house saw his mother-in-law lying in a bed with a fever. So he touched her hand, and the fever left her. Then she got up and began to serve him. Now I want you to catch this. Did Peter's mother-in-law have faith in Jesus? I can wait for an answer this morning. No. He did it of his own prerogative. He went into that room, and he goes, Hey, get up. She got up. Faith was not an issue. Why? Because if you're the healer, faith is inconsequential. You can do it. You can do it. People, Jesus healed people without any evidence of faith at times. Now sometimes he says, you're going to have to believe me for this. But notice, the initiative lay with who? Jesus. Jesus had the authority. All right? Look at this one. Some people say, well, Jesus will heal everyone. And, and, and all it is, their theology is just a little off. Because I do believe Jesus will heal us all. And I don't mean death. I'm saying on that day when the dead in Christ will rise and will receive our resurrected bodies. The corruptible will put on incorruptible. The mortal will put on immortality. That sounds like healing to me. It's coming. But what about in this life? Look at what it says in John chapter 5, verse 3 and 5. John 5, 3 and 5. Listen to this. With, this is at the pool of Bethesda. Within these lay a large number of the disabled. So they, he starts listening. Blind, lame, paralyzed. Many people are there at the pool of Bethesda. 
Notice what Jesus does. Mean, mean Jesus. One man was there who had been disabled for 38 years, and that's the man he said, pick up your bed and walk. But Jesus, you just passed all the blind, the lame, and the disabled. What does that mean for us? How does that, and that's the part costing, how does that job with our theology and with a Jesus who has authority and all power to heal, and at the same time, he'd walk past countless others to heal one? Out of all the sick at the pool of Bethesda, Jesus healed one man. There was nothing about this man that made him more deserving than the others, nor did he seek Jesus. Jesus approached him. And it just goes to show you again, I think this is important, this was Jesus' sovereign choice. This has to do with Jesus' authority to do what he wants. Well, let's look at the Apostle Paul. Oh, the Apostle Paul. Now, he was a healer. But we also, we like to highlight the times when he healed people, but he also left the wake of people he didn't heal. Listen to what it says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 27, or just write it down. But he talks about Epaphroditus who came all the way to find Paul in prison to be a great comfort to him. And while, while he was there with Paul on Paul's watch, Epaphroditus almost died. Epaphroditus actually sent him back to Philippi to say, he is causing me anxiety being here. I want to get him back home to you. Look at what it says in 1 Timothy 5.23. 1 Timothy 5.23, Paul bids Timothy, drink some wine for your stomach issues. Well, could he not just pray that away? And in 2 Timothy 4.20, 2 Timothy 4.20, this is the one that's the most amazing to me. Paul leaves Trophimus sick at Miletus. Uh, Trophimus, uh, get your act together because I got to go. And I'm not trying to be uncaring. I'm trying to show you there's something else going on. Here's what we can find rest and comfort in. And I really mean this. There's actually a level of comfort for those who struggle with this theology that no one should be sick. Sin is, ult sin is ultimately responsible for the sickness we experience, not personal sin, but sin as, a, as an experience of humanity. It's a part of the human experience. But the other part is this. Here's what I want you to catch. It is possible to be spiritually healthy and physically sick. I need you to catch that. Because there's, going to be, there's a gospel that gets being preached that, that that doesn't exist. If you're spiritually healthy, uh, you're physically healthy. That's not in the Bible. You won't find it. They're lying to you, and most of them are lying to you for greedy gain. They want your money and will tell your itching ears what they want to hear. And we can go back over and over time, and I'm not saying we should pray. I'm, I'm not going to sit down here and pray for sickness. But I do want you to notice this. God can use sickness to, use his, to get about his sovereign purposes. Neither one are beyond his redemption. They can all go to the redemption of others and the glory of God. I'll talk about what it means for us more in just a moment. Just hold on tight. One last one I want to define for you is the performing of miracles. The performing of miracles. This is the workings of unique, extraordinary powers. It literally is the performing of powers 
like raising the dead or casting out demons. All right? Extraordinary powers like raising the dead and casting out demons. So what, Josh? That's the question. We've defined them. We see there's some boundaries, or at least they're not active at all times, or that one person doesn't have a monopoly over all of them. Does that mean none of these things happen today? I don't believe that. I believe that these things still happen today. Let me, let me ask you this. How many of you lack wisdom and would like to have wisdom? Some of you who didn't raise your hand, you're the ones that need wisdom. <laughs> words of wisdom and words of knowledge could be, and I believe this, could be associated with just the simple explanation and application of Christ-centered gospel truths. Now catch this. I could tell you you're responsible by yourself to simply pray for wisdom, which you should do. Go read James chapter 1. Get into the scriptures, which you should do. Go 2 Timothy chapter 3. They can make you wise into salvation. But let me tell you something else what God has done. Some of you lack wisdom and don't go to Sunday school. What happens if it just so happens your teacher has a gift of knowledge and wisdom? They could explain and apply, give you insight and implications into who Christ is. You sit there and you beg, Christ, give me wisdom and knowledge. Me, me, me. And he says, well, actually, there's a person in your church that I've placed in your church that knows that and you could find out just by attending or asking. See, we never thought that these gifts could actually, may not be given to me. The gift that I may need, Brother Richie might have. And it's meant so that we have a relationship and we receive that through one another's gifting. You never thought of it that way. What if it's that way? Wouldn't it be devastating to know that the wisdom and knowledge that you lack, someone else already has, and they would freely give it to you? And that means there are some of you who know the Scriptures and you know Jesus and you have inside implications. I don't mean this to puff you up because knowledge puffs up. But the point is this, if you use it in love, it's a benefit to the church. Some of you need to speak up. Think about what, what if the person at Corinth who had this gift of wisdom and knowledge spoke up and helped those immature believers that were struggling with idolatry and food. Do you think that would have been a help? Oh yeah. So these things might very well be active. And we don't even know because we don't even rub elbows with people who have different gifts than us. How many of you, and because I'll be the first if you know anything about my history, how many of you have been beset by worry and anxiety? I, there better be more people than that. I know the stats. I've counseled most of you. Yeah. We sit there. I've done this. God, increase my faith. You ever prayed that? God, increase my faith. The Scriptures, hey, they birth faith. But what if, just what if, the neighbor next to you could help restore your faith? Ever thought about that? This person has a gift of faith. They're here. God put them here, sitting next to you to encourage you. 
Man, I ain't had a day of worry in my life. Talk to me. Let's talk. Let me encourage you. There's people in this church, when I'm having a tough time, I know. I just need to go hang around them a little bit. Because they encourage me. They lift me up. They don't puff me up. I'm saying, look, God's got it, Josh. He's going to take care of it. Trust his providence. They provoke you to faith, so to speak. He's placed those gifts in the church. So yes, we should pray for faith and seek faith. But just what if your neighbor, and neighbor, if you have a gift of encouragement and faith, please share that with us who are struggling. And that means some of us have to stop lying. And when actually somebody says, how are you doing? You need to tell them, my world is falling apart. And don't just put that smile on your face. Because you may just activate the gift of faith and somebody goes, well, let's, let's talk. Let's talk. They can maybe pull you up out of that pit. And what about the gifts of healings and miracles? Please, church, do we not pray for people to be healed? We've done it this morning. The list keeps continuing. Why? We see sickness. It's an evidence that we are in a fallen, broken world. Listen to what the brother of Jesus said, another apostle, his name's James, in James chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. Listen to this. He starts off in the singular and then moves to the plural. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Did you notice that? So if you're suffering, should you pray? Yes. Okay? So notice there's not, the, 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 the scriptures do not tell us not to pray for healing. That's absurd. Nobody teaches that. We pray for healing. Look at what it says here. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. If somebody's got something to be thankful about, share it with the church. Sing it out loud. And then he starts to move into some plural things. Is anyone among you sick? And notice what, what the Apostle James says. He should call for the elders of the church. They are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now there's two thoughts on the oil issue, popular thoughts. Either this was essential oils before it got popular. <laughs> or it was a way to mark this person as separated for healing. God, we recognize them and they need a special touch of your grace. But here's the point. Notice what the prayer, it's interesting. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. All I want you to see the shift real quick. I want you to see the shift. He went from talking about singularity in prayer to what? Pray for one another. Pray for one another. Here's the simple idea. I think it's so profound, though. Seek God. Seek God. And seek the church. Seek God and seek the church. You say, Josh, what do you mean by that? We need to be okay to come into this place. And none of us, none of us can guarantee another person, I can heal you. You cannot make that statement. Jesus is the only one that can make that statement, and he did it of his own sovereign choice. 
But here's what all of us can do. I can pray for you. Isn't it sad when we take on our suffering, our sickness, and our sin, and we try to handle it just one-on-one, just us? The point I'm trying to get to is God has gifted people in the body who may have the faith that you've never had. And that's okay. The point is he's saying, go find those people. <laughs> Let those people pray over you. He's the prayer of a, of a faithful person, a righteous person. It's effective. And so we got to get to a place where we're willing, hey guys, to be vulnerable, to come to the place where we go, I'm sick, I'm suffering, and I need your help. I need faith. I need healing. And we can't guarantee that we can give it. But all I'm trying to say is we seek God and we seek the church's help as well. What if, what if the reason why some of these gifts aren't operative in the way is, number one, we don't do them properly according to Scripture, but then quite frankly, we just don't seek each other out. We keep everybody at our good American space distance, and that's all. And we just got to begin the church to reverse the trend. This is a place of refuge for the sick, for the suffering, for the abused, for the ones who need healing and help. You should be able to come and look at the people of the church with all honesty and go, I need you. That's what the church, what Paul's trying to say, nobody's competing, we're completing one another. Thanks for listening to Mount Carmel Baptist Church's weekly Sunday worship service message. Mount Carmel is located in Demarest, Georgia. Please join us this Sunday at 11 a.m. To plan your visit, go to mtcarmeldemarest.com.